0: Welcome to a special Supreme Court edition of ABI Podcast. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's editor-at-large, and I am joined today by a panel of experts to discuss the opinion handed down on May 20 by the Supreme Court in the case of mission product versus technology. The case presented an opportunity for the high court to extrapolate on what follows from the rejection of an executory contract. I uh, was uh, somewhat apprehensive when I awaited the decision, because whatever the court says could impact all manner of executory contracts, not merely trademark licenses, which were the subject of the case. And not to hold you in suspense any longer, the Supreme Court ruled almost unanimously that the rejection of a trademark license does not bar the licensee from continuing to use the trademark. We have three experts to analyze the decision in detail. First, we have Judge Kevin Carey, a bankruptcy judge for the last 19 years, 14 of them in Delaware and previously for five years in Philadelphia. I am sad to say, as most of you know, that Judge Carey is stepping down from the bench on August 31. Next, we have Lindsey Milney, partner at Bernstein Shore in Portland, Maine. Lindsey was counsel for Mission, and so followed this case and brought it along all the way from the bankruptcy court to the Supreme Court. Finally, we have Paul Haig, a partner at the Jaffe Rate Firm in Southfield, Michigan. Paul is an ABI board member and was one of the original 40 under 40 classes for ABI. Uh, He has been the Education uh, Director for the Intellectual Property Committee for the ABI. The four of us, by the way, were part of an ABI live webinar discussing the oral argument that was held in the Supreme Court in February. In fact, you could go back and listen to that February webinar to find out how we did or did not correctly guess how the Supreme Court will rule. And today, we have gathered together the same panel analyze in detail what the Supreme Court actually said in its May 20 opinion in the technology case. So let's begin here. Lindsay, I would like to hit you with the first question, and that is, could you please tell us uh, what it was uh, summarized that the Supreme Court held in this opinion on May 20?
1: Happy to, Bill. Justice Kagan, writing for um, the majority of the court in an 8-1 to opinion, held in short that a debtor's rejection of an executory contract under Bankruptcy Code Section 365 has the same effect as a breach of that contract outside of bankruptcy. Specifically, she specified that such an act cannot rescind the rights of the contract previously granted.
0: Uh Huh. So, in other words, rejection is not rescission. Is that right?
1: That's precisely right, Bill. And I think this gets to a point that um, Mission made in its briefing about the distinction between rejection of an executory contract and the very narrowly tailored avoidance powers that are detailed in the bankruptcy code that allow a debtor in certain circumstances to unwind pre-petition contracts. Um, The court found very clearly that rejection is not such an avoidance power and cannot undo pre-petition agreements or revoke rights-granted pre-petition, but rather has the same impact that breach of such a contract would have had outside of bankruptcy.
0: Well, it sounds to me, Lindsay, that the opinion is very important in that respect, that if you've got something that looks like uh, an avoidance action, you've got to have an adversary proceeding. can't use some shortened procedure. So I guess that's an important takeaway from this decision. Uh, Paul, I have a question for you. That is, how did Justice Kagan arrive at that holding that Lindsay just described?
2: Well, thanks, Bill. Um, You know, it was really uh, very much a plain meaning type of opinion. It was uh, narrowly tailored. Did she use the word plain meaning? I don't know if the actual word plain meaning is used, but that's, uh, you know, that's certainly sort of the approach that was taken. I mean, she starts. She starts off the analysis by really just sort of walking through the code uh, in, in a very sort of casual way, saying, you know, first we have 365A, and 365A empowers a debtor to reject a contract. And, and then, moving further through 365, she goes to 365G and says, 365G highlights exactly what it means uh, to reject a contract. What's the, what is the consequence of rejection? And it's a breach. And that really... Yeah is the is sort of the basis for the entire opinion
3: she does a great job I think of going through the plain meaning method and it's really one of the purest applications i've seen in recent years because the doctrine I think has been um, so poorly used in deciding cases where statutory language truly is ambiguous um, it's just a matter of when judges disagree you know she went she did a great job of Going through 365, as Paul said, which is, if not the longest, one of the longest sections in the bankruptcy code, she really navigated it well, I thought, the opinion was clear, was concise. Um, she said, only so much as needed to be said to dispose of the matter before the court. Uh, there were, thank goodness, no errant Supreme Court footnotes, which so often create problems. Really, it's one of the best decisions, I think, bankruptcy decisions the Supreme Court has issued recently.
2: I think the only obstacle you know, wh- to, to a plain meaning approach here was really this argument that the debtors had made about negative inference. And the argument there was that Congress has enacted 365N dealing with intellectual property and 365H and 365I, which deal with real property leases and timeshares, and, which basically provide that the non-debtor party to those types of contracts have sort of unique rights. And so the argument, the negative inference argument that the debtor was making was that uh, rejection must be must be more than just a plain breach that allows the non-debtor party to enjoy its rights still, because if it was just a plain breach, then those provisions that Congress so carefully drafted in 365NH&I are really uh, sort of unnecessary. And 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 the court, I think, does a good job of saying, you know, just because Congress wanted to specify certain rights and certain procedures with respect to those code provisions, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, where those code provisions don't apply, uh, that something other than breach is mandated. In fact, 365G makes clear that all that is conduct, uh, contemplated here is a breach upon rejection. So, so that was kind of an argument, a, st- a canon of statutory construction type argument that the debtors were making. And and again, uh, the court didn't go there. The court went with really very much what does the statute say, and that is a breach.
1: Indeed, Paul, I'll add the court um, gave a good justification for those specific uh, provisions in the code, explaining that more often than not, they were enacted to remedy what the court called a poor judicial decision, or I guess a, a misinterpretation of Section 365G and what it means. So the the court was able to explain why those specific provisions exist and why they do not uh, take away from the proper plain meaning of 365G.
2: Yeah, the other major argument, Bill, that um, that that the debtor had made and, and that the Supreme Court had to address in this opinion was that um, the interpretation that the licensee was taking of the statute and its rights after rejection made it harder for debtors to reorganize because trademark licenses, the debtor argued, and there's some support for this, are different. In in terms of uh, under state law, there, there may be some continuing obligation of a licensor to monitor the mark and, and how it's being used by the party who is its licensee. And that if they don't do that, that the value of the mark can be reduced or even eliminated. And so the debtors had argued and said, you know, if if there's a continuing obligation on the part of the debtor to post-rejection to monitor uh, this mark because the licensee can use it, then that's a real problem, right? Because it's inconsistent with the concept of 365A, which is relieving the debtor of burdens associated with the lease and giving it, you know, in some ways sort of a fresh start. well that's just uh, the distinction the court talked about. It said, well, rejection means that
3: the debtor's relieved of performance, but it's not relieved of any burdens which may exist as a result of uh you know, applicable non bankruptcy law. They were very careful to, to use the word, well you you can you can excuse performance, but maybe some of the burdens still hang around. And that's an right. economic decision the debtor can make. That's right. Well you know what one if the decision
0: had been to the contrary licensors could file bankruptcy, terminate existing licenses, and then the best utility would be to issue the licenses again to somebody else for more money.
2: Right. It sounds to me right. as though that's something debtors cannot do. That was a counter-policy license. argument, certainly, to um, um, uh, to the argument that, uh, that this is really impeding the reorganization Do you all think that this will make life
0: more difficult and reorganizations more difficult for intellectual property licensors?
2: So I think it might make it a little bit more difficult because it's not as easy as simply saying we're going to reject the lease and thinking, you know, both sides have to walk away. You do have to deal with now. Did the court have anything to say about
0: the fact that it might make reorganization more difficult? It did,
2: you know. The court said, "Well, what you they know, basically, that, that's how it goes." You know, that the bankruptcy uh-huh. uh, bankruptcy doesn't remove all obstacles to reorganization. This is still a hard thing to do, and uh, and it, the court acknowledged that this uh, resulting balance may indeed impede some reorganizations. But uh, nevertheless, that's what's contemplated in the code, and and that's just the way it is. I think I think one of the takeaways of this maybe is to the extent that. That um the inability to reject and take back the the license of the trademark to the extent that does impede reorganizations, then maybe you're more likely to see uh more three sixty three f sales um, where a debtor tries to uh sell uh, the property interest the the trademark license uh free and clear of the licensee's interest in that uh, contract, and then you're getting to the sort of the analogy as to the Qualitech and Spanish Peaks cases dealing with 365H and whether you can sell free and clear of a non-debtor party's rights under a contract. But that may be where this is headed to the extent, um, of course, you still have to provide adequate protection under 363E, under but that may be where this is headed. Uh, to the extent that yeah, and, and, it's reorganization.
0: And, and by the way, what you said about having to provide adequate protection in a sale free and clear can be the killer. That can, in view of some courts, make it uh, impossible to sell free and clear. Uh, Judge Kerry, I'd like to ask you a different kind of a question. Uh, there was, I believe, a circuit split
3: that brought this case to the Supreme Court. Can you tell us what that was? Yeah, there's clearly a circuit split here. In in 1985, the Fourth Circuit in the Lubrizol case decided that rejection did mean termination or was the equivalent of rescission um, with respect to rejection of intellectual property licenses, generally. Uh, Three years later, Congress passed 365N, which um, gave protection to the licensees of intellectual property, except they did not include trademarks. So then, in 2007, along came the Seventh Circuit in Sunbeam and rejects the Lubrizol reasoning, saying, wait a minute, um, rejection is breach. It's, it's not the functional equivalent of rescission. It merely frees the estate from the obligation to perform and has absolutely no effect on the contract's continued existence. So that really, um, the circuit ex- split, split existed then, I think, um, but then this case came along and it was pretty clear. Uh, that there was a split. Well, it's interesting how once Congress stepped in,
0: people dropped this issue like a hot rock, and it took nearly 35 years for the Supreme Court to have the opportunity to correct a mistake that the Fourth Circuit made back in 1985, because that Lubrizol decision, and I remember when it came down, it, it just sort of created a firestorm. But it took a long time to fix it. Uh, let me uh, ask a, uh, another question of Lindsay. How did this case come up to the Supreme Court from the lower courts?
1: Sure. So um, there was a case pending before the bankruptcy court for the District of New Hampshire in which Temponology sought, among other things, to reject certain executory contracts. And it filed a motion, as many debtors do, that covered uh, the rejection of several contracts. Mission objected, asserting its 365 N rights, and the bankruptcy court entered an order ultimately granting the debtors motion to reject, but specified that that authority was subject to Mission's 365 N rights. The debtor then sought to clarify that those 65N rights, excuse me, 365N rights, did not give Mission the continuing ability to use its trademarks and exclusive distribution rights. Mission objected, but the bankruptcy court agreed with the debtor, finding that rejection had terminated Mission's rights to use its trademarks and exclusive distribution rights under this marketing agreement it had with the debtor.
0: In other words, the the bankruptcy court followed Lubrizol?
1: Well, the bankruptcy court didn't explicitly embrace the Lou decision, but yes, Bill, in essence, it did. Yes, that's right. So what happened in the BAP? What
0: happened in the BAP?
1: At the BAP, uh, the BAP reversed the bankruptcy court, and the panel was comprised of judges Lemoot, Hoffman, and Kerry. Uh, They adopted the Sunbeam analysis from the Seventh Circuit and found that rejection of an executory contract does not, quote, vaporize any rights under the agreement, but rather had the same effect of, uh, excuse me, a breach outside of bankruptcy.
0: Now we go to the circuit, and uh, how did the circuit vote on the issue?
1: The circuit ended up affirming the bankruptcy court's decision and in essence embraced the Lubrizol determination that trademark rights were indeed terminated by rejection of a license and in particular cited to the burdens under applicable law that the licensor would have to carry in maintaining the mark in order to sustain the license that mission sought to uh,
0: now what? Was the circuit opinion unanimous or not?
1: No, there was a dissent. Um, and <laughs> the dissent embraced, yeah. again, as the BAP had, the sunbeam analysis, that uh, rejection was not tantamount to rescission.
0: Yeah. Uh, Kevin, uh, Judge Kevin Carey, I have a question for you next. Uh, there was a major issue at oral argument about whether this appeal was moot and whether the petition for certiorari should have been uh, revoked uh,
3: how did the court come down on them? Well, issue? The, the reason the reason there was an argument that the matter was moot was that after the bankruptcy court had issued its ruling, the license agreement that was at issue here expired by its own terms. So, in his dissent, Justice Gorsuch said, you know, nothing we might say here could restore Mission's ability to use the technology's trademarks. Well, Mission argued, look, we were prevented because of the, some of the decisions on the way to the Supreme Court, from using the um, the trademark, and we ha- and we suffered damage as a result of that. So we still have the right to seek money damages. This this is not moot. Um, the majority agreed uh, and decided that the issue was not moot. Uh,
0: very uh, very interesting. I think what's most interesting in that respect about the opinion it shows what a stickler Justice Gorsuch is when it comes to uh, issues like mootness, because this is not the, same, the first time that he has raised that issue in his brief tenure so far on the court. Listen, Lindsay, I'm going to get back to you with a, with a question. What does this opinion mean for intellectual property that is covered by Section 365 n? such as patents. Does this opinion mean much of anything or not?
1: So uh, the Supreme Court's opinion does not impact the rights of licensees of, quote, intellectual property as defined in the Bankruptcy Code, which, as you point out, does not include trademarks. Um, In fact, the court specified that the provisions of 365N, which is the applicable provision for um, intellectual property licenses, are not redundant of Section 365G. They just provide certain specific rights that may be slightly different than the impact under state law, which would have existed if we applied the general rule that rejection has the same effect as breach outside of bankruptcy.
2: You
0: know, I
1: suppose,
0: though, that if there is an issue in litigation involving, say, uh, a copyright or a patent that is covered by 365N, But if that particular issue is not answered in 365N, maybe this opinion tells us that we should then look to state law. I don't know. Just a a thought. Not sure about that.
1: I think that's right, Bill. That's the starting point, I think. And um, to the extent that there are provisions of 365N that specify particular treatment that differs from state law and only to the extent that they specify different treatment, then they would remain applicable under this opinion.
2: And I think that's one well, of the points that Justice Sotomayor was pointing out in her concurrence was that you know maybe this isn't maybe this is a something where Congress needs to act because you it may not be appropriate to have a situation where um, the rights of a trademark licensee are are arguably less favorable than the rights of other licensees of intellectual property who Congress specifically decided we want to try and protect with the enactment of 365N. Yeah. And so she sort of calls, doesn't she, to sort of say, hey, maybe that maybe Congress needs to relook at 365N a little bit here.
0: Yeah. Well, listen,
2: Paul, I have a, a question for you. What does this opinion
0: mean for lessors of personal property, say a copy machine?
2: Yeah, well, the copy machine the, is the great example that's, uh, that's actually taken up by the court. It was discussed at oral argument and... Uh, and a, a, a fairly lengthy paragraph on page nine of the opinion focuses on the photocopier. The, the the hypothetical that is discussed is if you have a law firm that leases a photocopier, uh, the the lessor of the photocopier breached files of bankruptcy, rejects the uh, the uh, lease, and does the lessor, uh, the photocopying company, uh, have the right? We know that they don't have to perform, they don't have to continue to service the uh, contract, but do they have the right to take their copy machine back? Um, and uh, clearly the answer is that they do not, uh, that um, on a breach of any type of a lease of uh, personal property, uh, the non-debtor lessee has the ability to continue to enjoy the rights that it has under that lease, that those rights aren't taken away or vaporized or whatever term you want to use. So the choice to terminate the agreement and send back the copier is for, in that scenario, the law firm, the non-debtor licensee or, or non-debtor lessee uh, to make, uh, not the debtor. Uh, and, and so the, you know, the, the bigger picture implication on that is, first of all, I think if you're representing uh, a, uh, a lessee of a personal property lease, you know, historically maybe it's tempting you see a rejection order and you say, okay, well, both parties just walk away. Well, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, that's not the case at all. Uh, in, in post-technology, those rights that you have uh, still exist, uh, and you continue to you have the right to use the equipment if you so want to. Um, it also, I think, the takeaway here is that this seems to preclude the debtor from using rejection as a means of recovering leased equipment and then reletting it at a higher price to somebody else. If you entered into a contract-free petition, you're, you're still bound by that. You don't have to perform yourself but you can't take the, the property back and cut a better deal. So I think that's really the implication here for, for personal well, property leases.
0: That's that's a big deal, Paul. If I had the ability orally to underscore what you just said, I, I certainly would. Uh, Kevin, as a last question, I'd like to pose this to you, Kevin Carey. What does this opinion mean for
3: lessors of real estate? Uh, means what 365H has said it means for some extended period of time. It was another area in which Congress said, look, if the lessor is the debtor and rejects the lease, the lessee has the right to remain in possession. Um, The landlord is relieved from uh, performance. Uh, the, The lessee has to pay rent, but may offset that rent against damages caused as a result of the lessor's failure to perform under the terms of the lease. So that, that doesn't change as a result of this decision. And I think, again, it shows how carefully uh, the court navigated its way through 365 and uh, parsed the things that, that change as a result of projection and things that don't. Um, and, again, I think they were very careful and did a wonderful job at not writing an opinion that would raise more questions than it would answer.
0: Well, listen, thank you very much, uh, Judge Carey. I would like to thank all three of our panelists once again. Judge Kevin Carey from Delaware, Lindsay Milney from bernstein Shore in Portland, Maine, and Paul Haig from Jaffe-Rate in Southfield, Michigan. We thank all three of you for elucidating elucidating, I should say, this very important decision. Uh, I would uh, suggest that all of our ABI friends stay tuned because we have one more Supreme Court decision on a bankruptcy case yet to be handed down. And I refer to the, uh, the Taggart versus Lorenzen case that was argued in the Supreme Court, but probably will not be decided until sometime in June. That case deals with the all-important question of whether or not good faith is a complete defense to an allegation that the creditor violated the automatic stay. As soon as that decision comes down, we will report the results and give an analysis on the ABI website. And then very shortly thereafter, we will have a webinar or a podcast very similar to this to discuss that very important decision in detail. And I must say that Taggart versus Lorenzen is a real biggie and we all need to stay tuned because it will have a great deal to say about whether or not debtors are effectively going to have good protection from the automatic stay and the discharge injunction. Well, Uh, This is Bill Rochelle uh, signing off for the time being. But as I said, join us again when we talk about Taggart versus Lorenzen. Good day.